Years ago, when I first started out as a pastor, I was tasked with the same sermon topic that I've been tasked with today, how to improve your moral character. And I wanted my message to stick to my then congregation. So I challenged my church to picture themselves wearing a t-shirt all the time that said, I'm in love with Jesus. I told them it's pretty hard to uh, cut someone off in traffic or to pay for one movie stay for two or to cheat on your taxes or to cheat on your spouse when you're wearing a t-shirt that says, I'm in love with Jesus. So I went home feeling pretty good about my amazing sermon I had just preached, how I inspired my congregation with the practical advice I had just given them. The next Sunday, um, there was a young man waiting for me at the side of the stage for when I got off after I finished preaching and he had a present for me. He handed me a present that he had made himself my very own t-shirt that says, I'm in love with Jesus. Now, believe it or not, almost two decades later, I still have the shirt that the young man made for me. I'm in love with Jesus. Now I was faced with this dilemma. Could I actually wear this shirt out in public and, and go about my regular life? See, could I function as a real follower of Jesus while at the same time being held accountable by what my shirt was proclaiming? Let me tell you, I would wear this shirt out in public and I was hyper aware of its implications. See, every word that I said, every deed that I did was being seen through the filter of my shirt. It was a learning and growing experience for me. my moral character was in check at all times. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to make up a bunch of these t-shirts and mail them out to all our members and, and force everyone to literally wear their moral character on their sleeve. But let me tell you, the fact still remains what we do matters to God, how we live, what we say, how we conduct ourselves matters to God. Our works and our deeds matter to God. As we've learned over the last couple of weeks at Better You, um, we've learned that this chair represents our salvation. It represents our faith in Jesus. And we don't do anything to earn it. We don't think do anything to deserve it. We simply rest our full weight in our faith in Jesus Christ, that his grace has covered us and we rest in our faith. It's not by our works or by our deeds. We simply rest in it. But We are not passive observers to this life of faith. We must add to our faith. And the apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, verse 5, that we can add to our faith goodness and knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And week by week at Better University, we are unpacking these qualities. Week by week at Better U, we are exploring these attributes so that you can become a better you. So today we're diving in to the topic and quality of goodness. And we're asking the question, how do I improve my moral character? Now, you might be thinking, how do we jump from goodness to moral character? Like what's the connection there? See, the Greek word that Peter uses for goodness is arete. It means excellence or praiseworthy virtue. Other Bible translators have translated this word goodness to mean good character or moral excellence. So how does someone grow in their goodness or their moral character? 
Well, in order to answer that question, we have to, we have to ask another question first. How do we even know what moral character is? Who gets to decide, who gets to decide what is good and moral anyway? Isn't morality just subjective? Don't different cultures at different times decide what they think and is to be considered good and moral? Don't different people from different backgrounds have different ideas of, of morality and can't they both be right? Or is being good and moral the same for all people at all times? Is there a standard of goodness? Well, as your outline says, yes, there is. The standard of goodness is God himself. The standard of goodness is God himself. You see, God, by definition, is the greatest conceivable being. There is no experience, no entity, no possibility, no goodness that is greater than God himself. God, by his very nature, is goodness. See, goodness is an attribute or a necessary expression of God, of God himself. His very essence is goodness. That's why he's the standard. Therefore, we hold everything up against him to determine its level of moral excellence. Now, think of it in these terms. How long <laughs> is a meter? How do we know how long a meter stick really is? Some of you might be thinking, well, it's like uh, 100 centimeters or maybe around three feet. But what is the standard for how long a centimeter is or how long a foot is? How do I know that my ruler is the same as your ruler? Like what is the standard for rulers and meter sticks? Go back in time with me to the year 1789, the French Revolution had just begun. And there was this great emphasis placed on the standardization of units of measurement within the scientific community. So in 1793, the, nation, the French National Convention adopted the meter as the basic unit of length that could be defined scientifically. And they defined the meter as one-tenth millionth of the distance from the North Pole to the equator as it passed along the meridian to Paris. The actual measurement was represented by an iron bar that's housed in Paris. So back in the 1790s, if you want to know if your meter stick, okay, was the same as the actual meter stick in Paris, the actual standard of the meter stick, you would have to go to Paris and you'd have to hold up your meter stick <laughs> to the iron bar in Paris to see how it measured up. Now, since then, technology has advanced a little bit. And the scientific community has, had, has invented a new, more uh, specific and precise way of defining the meter. Today, they define the meter as the length of the path traveled by light in a vacuum for a certain amount of time. But nevertheless, there is still a set standard that we hold all our meter sticks up to when, tr when trying to determine the truth about measurements. So, if it's an iron bar in Paris, or if it's the length of a path traveled by light in a vacuum, there is a standard of measurement. Well, if there's a standard of measurement, where do we look to for the standard of all goodness and morality? Well, we look to God because God by his very nature, his essence is goodness. Okay. 
if God is the standard of goodness, then how do we know what God thinks is good? Like how has God revealed to us what that standard is? Well, it's quite simple. We look to Jesus. As your outline says, we look to the life and the teachings of Jesus. You see, Jesus was God with skin on. He was the exact representation of God the Father. In John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus told his disciples, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. The apostle Paul describes Jesus this way to the church in Colossae. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The writer of Hebrews declares that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. God upholds the universe by the word of his power. So you want to know what God's good nature is like? Just look to Jesus. See, Jesus walked the earth during a time when virtues as we know them today were very different. For example, when we think of virtues and good morals today, we might cite something like uh, humility or, or compassion. But 2000 years ago in a Greek and Roman culture, compassion and humility were nothing. They were looked upon as weakness, not virtue. See, Jesus didn't just accept the morality of the culture and time and affirm it. No, Jesus lived countercultural. We could even argue that the only reason that we look to things like compassion and humility today and call them good is because that is what Jesus taught and modeled by his life and teaching. By the way he lived, by the way he interacted with people, Jesus started to model God's set standard of goodness. Now, when it comes to moral character, if Jesus is the iron meter stick that we hold our life up to, what did Jesus actually teach when it came to moral character? Matthew describes one instance when, when Jesus started to get to the heart of moral excellence. Picture this in your mind. Jesus and his disciples were teaching to a large crowd and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law from Jerusalem, they came to him and they began to question Jesus why his disciples weren't following one of their hand-washing customs. Now, now the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were pretending to live in moral excellence, but Jesus could see right through them. Jesus knew what was actually going on in their hearts. He knew how hypocritical their ways had become, and he starts to get to the heart of moral character. Jesus says this, he says, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out the body? But then the things that come out of a person's mouth, they come from the heart. For these things defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands, these don't defile them. See, Jesus is saying that you cannot pursue moral excellence with religious rules and deeds alone. See, true moral character is shown as an overflow of the heart. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false testimony and slander. What Jesus is saying is you cannot pursue moral excellence with a heart full of evil. As your outline says, you cannot pursue moral excellence and entertain your sin at the same time. 
Improving your moral character may not be about what you need to start doing, but perhaps what you need to stop doing. As your outline says, if you want to improve your moral character, cut sin out of your life. Now, sin is a funny thing. The Bible talks about sin as anything that misses the mark, anything that falls short of God's standard, anything that we hold up to God's awesome standard, his awesome iron meter stick, and it doesn't match up, that's sin. But perhaps you're watching today and you're not a religious person and you don't even think there is such a thing as sin. You don't think there is an ultimate standard of goodness, that there is such a thing as right or wrong or or evil or good. For today's purposes, you can define sin however you want. Maybe for you, sin is just going against what you've decided is your own set rules of morality. But regardless of how you define sin, the Bible reminds us that we are all sinners. We have all fallen short of God's glorious standard. In 1 John, it says, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. So if you're watching today and you're thinking to yourself, man, this message is great for someone else, but I don't have sin in my life that I need to deal with then you're only fooling yourself and you're not living in reality. Okay. If sin is something that we all deal with and we want to improve our moral character, how do we cut sin out of our lives? I want to get really practical about how to improve our moral character by cutting sin out of our lives. So when it comes to dealing with sin, there's three things that we can do. We can repent of it. We can reject it and we can replace it. Let's begin by talking about that first one, repenting of it. What does repenting of our sin actually look like? See, this word repent simply means turn 180 degrees. So if you're walking in one direction, when you stop and you repent, you turn 180 degrees and you start heading back to God. That is what repentance is. Repentance is simply confessing to God what he knows already to be true and turning your ways back to him. Proverbs chapter 28, 13 says, people who concealed their sins will not prosper. But if they confess and they turn from them, they will receive mercy. It's high time that some of us humble ourselves before the Lord and repent of our sin. James, the brother of Jesus, he paints this picture of what true repentance looks like. He says, quit dabbling in sin, purify your inner life, quit playing the field, hit bottom and cry your eyes out. The fun and games are over. Get serious, really serious. Get down on your knees before the master. It's the only way you'll get back up on your feet. See, repentance really is the first step in cutting sin out of your life. It's the only way of getting back up onto your feet. So how do we cut sin from our life? Well, first we need to repent of it, but next we reject it, reject it. Now rejecting sin, it sounds a lot easier than it actually is because sin is sneaky. Sin is a liar. Sin always takes you further than you wanted to go. It always promises more than it gives. And it always leaves you worse off than you were before. 
So why is just flat out rejecting sins just so difficult to do? Think of it in these terms. If you've ever spent time reading through the scriptures, you've heard of leprosy. But when's the last time we heard about someone having leprosy today? Today, uh, leprosy is known as Hansen's disease. And uh, we don't talk about it much in our culture. We don't see it much in this day and age. But Hansen's disease and leprosy, they still exist. We still have lepers today. Now, when I picture a leper, I think of someone who's very sick and diseased, a very contagious person that is, that is missing body parts and limbs and with open sores and scabs, like almost zombie-like. See, leprosy is a disease that affects your nerves. You lose the ability to feel pain. Now, you might be thinking, Simon, hold up. Not being able to feel pain, that sounds amazing. Like, my whole body hurts. I'm getting old, okay? But you see, the problem with not being able to feel pain is it affects so many other areas of your life. The problem can start so small. It can start as small as a rock in your shoe. If someone with leprosy gets a small rock stuck in their shoe, they wouldn't be able to feel it. And slowly that rock would rub and then create a blister. And soon that blister would burst and and become an open sore. Now that person with leprosy, they wouldn't know to attend to that sore like you or I would because of the pain, because they don't even feel pain. So soon that infection, it would set in and it would spread. And before you know it, what was just first to be a simple rock in their shoe has now turned into a bleeding, rotting, smelling, infested foot that might need to be amputated. Okay, Simon, hang on. Why are we talking about leprosy again? Like I just ate my breakfast. (laughs) So here's the thing. Leprosy is like sin. Leprosy is like sin because it can start so small and then turn into something drastic fast. We might have a little sin stuck in our life, like like a little sin that we barely know it there. It's like something just stuck in our shoe, but that little sin grows into a huge festering sore that needs to be addressed. It may be small and we may try to manage it on our own. We may think that we can handle it and, and it won't get out of control, but sin has a way of rooting and festering and smelling. And it's time we cut it out of our life before we have to amputate some limbs. Hebrews chapter 12 puts it this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a huge crowd of witnesses to this life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. We do this by following the standard that Jesus set. You see, God really does want us to strip off every weight that's slowing us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. See, according to the Bible, we need to get deadly serious about rejecting sin. The apostle Paul puts it this way, very bluntly. He says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Put it to death. There's no messing around here. He says, put it to death, reject it. Jesus himself takes a stab at what it means to cut sin out of your life for good. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, 
gouged cross once and for all, breaking its power and its shame. And he calls us to stop trying to manage our sin and simply put it to death. He calls us to reject it, even if we have to take drastic measures to cut that sin out of our life for good. Now, I should note here that Jesus is speaking metaphorically. He doesn't actually want anyone to cut off their hand or gouge out their eye. But for you, what does rejecting sin look like? Does rejecting sin mean altering your alcohol consumption? Does rejecting sin mean mean having to choose a new social circle? Does rejecting sin mean changing your internet habits? Does, Does rejecting sin mean controlling your tongue? See, depending on the nature of that sin, that will determine what our response should be. In Genesis chapter 39, when young Joseph was tempted to engage in a sexual relationship with a married woman, he rejected it by literally running away. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, when speaking to those who might be tempted to fall in love with their money, Paul told them to reject it by giving it away. So what does rejecting sin look like in your life, in your situation today? Okay, we're going back to school at Better University and we're asking the question, how do I improve my moral character? So far, we've learned that Jesus is the standard of goodness. And if we want to improve our moral character, we have to start by dealing with the sin in our life. And the first way way that we do that is we repent of it. We turn 180 degrees away and start heading in the other direction. Next, we reject it. And depending on the nature of that sin, that will determine what your specific response will be. And it may look different for each of us, but for all of us, it must be taken seriously. If we wish to pursue moral excellence, we can no longer entertain ourselves by our sin. So when it comes to cutting sin out of your life, first, you you repent of it. Next, you reject it. And thirdly, you replace it. As your outline says, replace it. The apostle Paul gives us this biblical strategy on how we can replace the sin in our life. When Paul was teaching to early Christ followers about how to cut sin out of your lives, he says this in Galatians chapter five, verse 16. He says, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. He goes on to say in verse 25, since we live by the spirit, let's keep in step with the spirit. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying as a Christ follower, when we reject sin, we're actually letting the Holy Spirit in and we replace our sin with God's indwelling presence. See, when we replace our sin with God's indwelling presence, what we're doing is we are interacting with God's spirit on a spirit to spirit level. I love the imagery that Paul uses about keeping in step with the spirit. It's it's like we are walking with God. God is our guide in this life of faith. He gives us the power and the strength to say no to ungodliness. See, when we replace our sin uh, in our lives, we're replacing it with God's indwelling presence, with a real relationship with the Holy Spirit, a spirit-to-spirit interaction. Let me ask you, do you have a daily, life-giving, perspective-keeping rhythm that you can replace your sin with, with God's indwelling presence? 
See, I find personally in my life time and time again, the easiest way for me to interact with God's presence in my life is through his written word. It's when I'm reading my Bible that the Holy Spirit can speak to my heart and convict me and and reveal things to me that I need to cut out of my life for good. See, reading scripture is just one way that I keep in step with the Spirit. How about you? What are you intentionally doing to interact with God's indwelling Spirit within you? So, If you want to improve your moral character, look to Jesus. And what did Jesus teach and model? He taught us to cut sin out of our lives. And how do we cut sin out of our lives? Well, first we repent of it. Then we reject it. And then we replace it. Today, I've done my best to to lay out some practical steps on how to grow in your moral character. But you might be watching today and And this whole idea of cutting sin out of your life and and improving in your moral excellence is hitting you right in the feels. Maybe you have sin in your life. Maybe it's small, but, but maybe it's big. Maybe it's festering. Maybe you feel like you have leprosy in your life. Maybe today you feel a bit like a leper. Luke tells us in Luke chapter five, verse 12, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and he begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and he touched him. He said, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Right now, where you sit, you have the same opportunity as that leper. See, he acknowledged that he had a problem and he needed to be cleaned. He humbled himself and he came to Jesus. He had faith and believed that Jesus could heal him. Today, where you sit, you have the same opportunity as that leper. You can acknowledge that you need help. You can humble yourself before God and you can believe that he can make you clean. Our God is a God of second chances. And today, if we say to him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. His response will simply be, I am willing. Be clean. And that brings us to the big idea for today. And for today's big idea, we borrow the words of Charles Spurgeon. You are a great sinner, but he is a greater savior. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, right now, as we come before you and as we seek to grow in our moral character, we just simply acknowledge that we have sin in our lives. I'm no longer going to try to manage the sin in my life. I simply want to repent of it. I want to reject it. I want to replace it. And this is the first step I get to do that. God, We know that you are gracious, that you will forgive us of our sins if we bring them to you. So Jesus, right here and right now, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Thank you for cleansing me of my sin by the power of your Holy Spirit. Come live within me from this day forward. I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name, everyone said together, Amen.
Amen. Now that prayer might seem simple and it might just be like you're saying words at a screen. But Jesus hears your prayer today. He accepts you into his family. And we celebrate together that a new life is born in Christ. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, the best advice I could give you is to text the number on the screen below. We would love to uh, interact with you. We have a pastor standing by right now that would love to text with you and tell you your next best step in a relationship with the God of the universe. Now, you don't have to confess your deepest, darkest sin, nothing like that. We simply want to just walk alongside you in this journey of faith. Well, thank you for being with us at Better University today, at Broadway Church today. Uh, Join us next week as we continue on in our Better You series.